podcast starts. Hello everyone. I hope you and your loved ones are all safe and well. It's TD Velasquez, but as ever you can call me Dan, and I'm here very briefly on my own to let you know that this episode is another in our short sequence of somewhat re-edited re-uploads from the previous podcast series that Howard and I created, the Lee Cushing Podcast. A brand new Lee Cushing episode with the two of us is coming out this Friday, but the discussion you're about to listen to was recorded in 2016 and concerns the 1965 film Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. As well as myself, you'll soon be hearing the voice of Howard and a few quick interjections by our friend Ben. To set the scene, we recorded some of the episode in a 1960s train station. We didn't really. The 755 Express for Bradley will be leaving in five minutes from platform three. Pardon me, I think there is room for one more in here, is there not? No. There's room for five more in this cabin. Oh, forgive me. I am a harmless old myopic, and also I believe I am earlier than intended. No doubt more will arrive as the train fills. Then perhaps you should sit down where there are still seats available. Ah, thank you so much. (coughs) Oh, my bag. Drat. Here, I'll help you with it. So foolish of me. Oh, I see from the name tag your name is Shrek. That's German for fright, I believe. Almost. My name literally means Dr. Terror. Uh, just ignore that, though. It's a meaningless detail. These fell out, too. Oh, they're tarot cards. I recognize the style of artwork. Oh, you know much about art. I certainly do. And I also know what I don't like. Superstitious rot rendered in garishly crude imagery. The tarot deck which I nickname my House of Horrors because I am charming. Holds the knowledge of the future, Mr. Marsh. Well, it's no surprise you know my name. I'm well known to my art criticism. And I find these cards depictions of death as a scythe-wielding skeleton childishly obvious. Your knowledge of the tarot deck seems particularly outdated. The deck I carry is a modern version. If you look closely at the cards, you will see they depict figures which function in a modern context, essential for making sense of our current times as well as to predict the future. Let me see. Hmm. A television DJ, a tap dancer standing on the Guinness Book of Records, What's this one of a harlequin standing underneath this emblem of a bird and an arrow? That denotes an actor out of the Hunger Games. Oh. And I think that's supposed to be Sean Connery. Yes, I like that one. Well, I must confess I'm something of a fan of Mr. Connery, too. Do you seriously expect me to believe that these cards constitute a prediction of the future? DJs, tap dancers, the start of some dystopic cinematic blockbuster, and the man who plays James Bond? These men will join us in this cabin, and using the tarot, I will be able to tell each one a story of his future. It is ordained. The tarot deck predicts the truth. The supernatural truth always... What utter balderdash. Can we help you, Inspector? Sorry to interrupt, gentlemen, but it looks like there are three seats in this cabin, and I've got Top the Pops, Alan Fluff Freeman, Roy Castle OBE, and Donald Sutherland, desperate to sit down. Excuse me. Now that they're here, Mr. Marsh, I'll have to explain the whole tarot single game so I can get on with telling their fortunes. I I enjoy this bit, so please don't steal my thunder. Gentlemen, perhaps you have heard of the tarot? Hold on a minute. What about Connery? A bunch of jets, I've got another one for you. Another than the famous Scottish film star. Neil McCallum. Just uh, sit down here. Who the bloody hell is Neil McCallum? I never said I was perfect.
I believe today we're going to be talking about a particular favourite film of mine, an absolute classic of the genre, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, we certainly are. Uh, it, it's a favourite of mine, and it was actually probably the first horror film, not the first horror film I ever saw, but certainly the first kind of horror film of this period that I ever saw. I kind of knew what Amicus was as a production company because when I was 12 or so or 11 I saw the Doctor Who films starring Peter Cushing from the early 60s and they were made by the same company as this but just afterwards and I'd read a bit about those uh, so I kind of knew the name Amicus but um, the listener may not so um, can you explain something about who Amicus were? Well Amicus was a company set up by a brilliant man, I believe he's brilliant, called Milton Sabotsky who was American he was, and in fact, we talked about it in the first episode of this podcast because he was the guy who originally went to Hammer with the idea of remaking Frankenstein, but but he didn't have anything to do with their actual production. Yeah. So anyway, he set up um, in the early sixties. Well, he set up a production company called Amicus Films, uh, and as a sort of rival to Hammer in a way, but doing something different or trying to do something different. And one of the things he wanted to do, he was a big fan, uh, as indeed a lot of people are, of a, a brilliant Ealing film called Dead of Night. Which is one, which is an anthology film. It's four or five stories in one with a sort of like connecting story, uh, and it's the one with Michael Redgrave and the ventriloquist dummy. Yes, that's the absolute classic, famous sequence, famous story from it. And it's the only horror film made by Ealing Studios, who are f- most famous for their comedies. It's one of the very few horror films made in Britain at that time in the 1940s. So mm. it's, it, and it is, it's brilliant. It's a wonderful film. If you get a chance to see that, certainly see it. It's got an all-star cast, Mervyn Johns and Googie Withers and Basil Radford and Norton Wayne. Anyway, Milton Sabotsky saw this film and he thought, that's an idea. Let's, let's have, instead of having just one vampire or one werewolf or one monster, let's have four or five in, in the same film. And uh, it's an idea, certainly it was very successful, this film, when it came out, I believe. Well, I think another thing which probably occurred to him was that um, the anthology movie as a genre was much more common then. Than, than now, there was, you know, you would have anthology dramas. Mm. There's a film called Train of Events, which is well, there was some Somerset and Maugham films, weren't there? Um, sort of in the in the fifties, late forties, fifties, three Somerset and Maugham stories in one. So yes, yeah, so the the idea of the anthology film, the portmanteau film, was quite well established then. And but Roger Corman had done some in America as well, and Tales of Terror with Vincent Price. Was that before this? I think it was before this. Oh, yes. okay. it was when he was doing his all his Poe films. Right. Uh, so it was it, it wasn't a new idea, but it was sort of like kind of like uh, a new idea for the horror film in Britain, uh, and. It's very. I mean, I, what I love about one of the many things I love about Doctor Terror's House of Horrors is the title, Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. It's the most unambiguous, brilliantly lurid title you can possibly have. There's no, you know, it's unapologetically a horror film. This is the film. Milton Sabotsky says, right, I'm going to make the ultimate film for horror film fans. It's going to have a werewolf. It's going to have a vampire. It's going to have a crawling hand. It's going to have manitin plants. It's going to have Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and Michael Goff. It's going to be directed by Freddie Francis. We're going to have all it, and it's just that's what I love. They're so sort of like they've got the courage of their convictions. It's, it's so unpretentious, a piece of entertainment, and it, you know, it, it's, and it works. And as well as poaching Hammer's headlining stars, and uh, uh, as you say, and plus Michael Goff, who'd also done some Hammer stuff and was known for horror, Sabotsky assembled a weird kind of all-star cast to surround them. Well, he'd made some musicals, you see, and I think it just as a kind of insurance, he thought, well, I'll have a couple of sort of like light entertainment or musical personalities in the film just to sort of appeal to that audience. So he's got... Roy Castle, uh, who's, who's great. You know, we all know Roy Castle. And he's got Alan Fluff Freeman. Uh, and, and Kenny Lynch. And Kenny Lynch, yes. Uh, Alan Fluff Freeman, is just <laughs> he just has this bemused expression. He obviously doesn't know why he's there, you know, <laughs> because he's not an actor. He's, he's sort of like a DJ, and he's sort of... Well, he uh, was the top of the Pops presenter. Yes, he, he, was, a, he you know, was a big name at that time, and he was... He was and it's fascinating. It's what makes the film so charming, is that they have those sort of people in it. And like Roy Castle, everybody loves Roy Castle, so, you know, sort of... Um, it's, it is such an eclectic cast. You've got a young Donald Sutherland before he was famous. And you've got all you've got Bernard Lee from the James Bond films and all that. It, it's, mm. In the later films, they had more like more international stars. Yeah. They had people like Terry Thomas and Ralph Richardson and Kurt Jurgens and John Collins and Charlotte Rampling and Richard Todd, lots of people. This is more sort of character actors around at the time, the kind of people who would be in The Avengers or who'd, who'd be in Hammer films. Yeah, Jeremy Kemp from Zed Carls. Yes, uh, yes, Jeremy Kemp and Anne Bell and Jennifer Jane, who'd been in a couple of, I think, science fiction films by that stage. Ah, OK, yeah, uh, we'll talk more about her later. Uh, and Neil McCallum, who needs no introduction, he's, he's very famous. So Very famous Scottish very famous, actor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a fascinating cast, uh, and it's, it's a fascinating film. And 
I suppose with all sort of like portmanteau films, you have to take them one story at a time. And obviously the, the stories vary in quality, but we'll, we'll talk about the overall effect of the whole movie, as well as the individual stories, but also the, the, the linking story and how uh, these all combine together to have the overall effect on you, of how you feel when you walk out of the cinema, essentially. Um, the structure of these films is that there is there tends to be, it's not always the case, but certainly in all the Amicus films and in Dead of Night and some of the others, there's not just four or five stories, there's also a linking narrative which comes in between the stories. And the linking narrative in Doctor Terror's House of Horrors is uh, set on a train in a train cabin, as we've alluded to in our spoofy opening, where Peter Cushing's Doctor Shrek treats his fellow passengers to a reading of their futures via tarot cards, and each um, reading results in a story. So we've got we've got these five characters, and each of them stars in an individual story. And the first person to pluck up the courage to to tap his hands on the cards and and have his future read is uh, Neil McCallum, who plays uh, an architect. And in the story that unfolds, he is going out to a remote island in the Hebrides, where his family home is, but he doesn't live there anymore. The lady who owns it now wants to renovate the building and because he's an architect and he knows it so well she's employing him to survey it essentially and uh, there's obviously something mysterious and scary going on i mean what we should say is spoilers well that's the that's especially with these sort of films because they're only 20 minutes and each one each story invariably has a twist at the end which we can't give away yeah so um, it's quite it's it's quite difficult to sort of discuss them without well, sort of i think as the listener might have um gathered by now i mean these are these are old films and and a lot of the the audiences might have been expected to have watched them before listening to this of course we hope that some of you may just be curious about the films and listen to this and decide whether so we don't want to spoil particular details but we will you know we'll have to say certain things to discuss a certain amount of what's going on and i think it's okay to say well, for heaven's sake, it's the title of the episode is Werewolf. Well, must be the coffin of Cosmo Valdemar. The werewolf. Over 200 years ago, Cosmo Valdemar claimed that this house was really his. And that my ancestors had stolen it from him. And he vowed that one day he'd return. He swore that his place would be taken by whoever owned the house. And that he himself would once again assume human shape. His grave was never found. Yeah, there is a so werewolf. there's a werewolf. werewolf. Um, we can't and... say who the werewolf is. Yeah, that's the thing about the film. It's not only called Doctor Terror's House of Horrors, but each of the episodes is just named after the monster that's in it. Yes. So it's called Werewolf, Crawling Hand, uh, Creeping Vine. You know, there's no, yes, there's, no, there's no attempt to be so, subtle so or to be sort of abstract or anything. It's just that's what it that's what it's about. It's about a werewolf. So yes, yeah, so, call so, it werewolf. So basically, if you don't want to be spoiled, but you've looked at the credits, you're buggered, essentially. <laughs> yeah, and and speaking of spoilers, um, those who've seen the trailer um, pretty much will know whatever the hell's in the film. It gives yes. a lot of it away. But also, I love the the brass neck of Sabotsky. The tagline in the trailer is "Horrors never before depicted on screen." What horrors have we got here? A werewolf wolf, a vampire, um, a disembodied creeping hand which had been done at least once and would be done um, several more times, voodoo which has been in cinema since the 30s, um, and what are we missing? Oh, and a creeping vine which was like the newest thing but there'd already been a film of Day of the Triffids. Yes, but it's never all been done in the same film. No, and that does add up to fun. Yes. Yeah, uh, I do think the first segment, the Neil McCallum segment, is a bit of a strange one. I can't really work out the plot, even though I've seen it loads of Well, it is weird. It took me a while to to realise that it's his house. He's going back to his house. And Mm. Ursula Howells is living there. Um, yeah, that, that that was a bit complicated. I, di- I didn't quite... But it's it's, an, it's a good one to start with because it's a well-made story and it has got a, like a classic monster. It has got a werewolf in it. Mm. Uh, Ursula Howells, who was one of Freddie Francis' favourite actresses, she's in quite a few of it. She's in Torture Garden, which is uh, the next, the next anthology court. film they made after this one and some of his TV stuff is very good. Yeah, she, she's actually remarkably good. I mean, from this film... I got the impression she was a big star. She probably should have been. She should have been a big star. Again, I think she's one of those actresses who... Preferred to be on stage. She was a theatre actress who just occasionally did TV and films, just sort of. You know. She puts real meaning into everything. She's she brilliant. Says she's, and she's, does she's, and she's. She has an extremely distinct type of beauty. Yeah, she's very glamorous, very stylish. The doctors decided that I needed complete rest and quiet, so I came here. Oh. And now, 
You've decided you want to rejoin the human race, eh? Why'd you say that? Well, you're having this room made into a ballroom. Oh, that's not for entertaining. You see, my husband was an archaeologist. He had a large collection of very valuable specimens from all over the world. I intend to turn this into a sort of museum to his memory. It's a beautiful house. And you're welcome to visitors any time. And yeah, and uh, yeah, I just think it's it's a nice, creepy, atmospheric story to start with, and it's it's not too demanding. It's not too, you know, sort of weird. It's just it's sort of like lets you into the film mm. quite well. It's, 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 I think it's just a good story to begin with. However, then we've got Creeping Vine. Yes. Which is the um, story, the segment starring the DJ. Alan Fluff Freeman. And um, <laughs> what I need to do is to preface this is I have a friend who I know is rather fond of this film and I also knew that we were doing this podcast so I just cornered him and asked him about it without warning on but re- recording it but without telling him what I was going to ask and I'd just like to play you what he said. Here we are at the Royal Exchange Theatre just before the press night of wit and I'm just taking you to one side for five minutes to ask you for your opinions on a movie that you've seen called Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. What is your first thought when I mention to you Dr. Terror's House of Horrors? It isn't any fun without Rusty. That's the line I used to that's the line I used to say. With my nephew. My nephew Elliot, but that was our catchphrase. It, it isn't any fun without Rusty. Um, yeah, that was the, <laughs> the little girl who says that is so RP. Who 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 is that that's talking man? Um, that's my friend Ben. Right. And uh, he, somebody else has picked up, but that's my catchphrase. And uh, he's got something <laughs> to say about the other stories as well. But um, yeah, uh, that actress, by the way, uh, grew up to be. Her name is now Phoebe Nichols. That's She's a Phoebe very Nichols. Distinguished actress who appears in Foils War and Midsummer Murders and all those sort of things and various films. I cannot believe that's Phoebe Nichols. Yes. Sarah just, Nichols became Phoebe Nichols. That is just extraordinary. Yes. I, I was just watching Phoebe Nichols last night in the Road to Coronation Street, which was showing as a tribute to the late, great Tony Warren, creator of Coronation Street. And I just commented to my mum, who I was watching it with, she's an actress who doesn't turn up enough, but whenever she does turn up in something, I go, my God, that's Phoebe Nichols, and she's great. Yeah, she's in, she's in a lot of stuff. She's very good. But anyway, that's how she started. She must have been about 10 years old, I imagine, when that film was made. Uh, yeah, so anyway, she was called Sarah Nichols. And was a, it's actually got a very good cast. Bernard Lee's in it, and Anne Bell's in it, and uh, well, Jeremy Kemp. And... I want to say a few things about this segment. By the way, um, dear listener, um, that line that we've quoted 20 times already <laughs> is said by a little girl who's... Um, the story is that... Uh, Alan Freeman moves into a new house with his family and for some reason the garden is full of sentient plants which start to attack the house and um, they kill the dog Rusty and traumatise the child Um, hence the line Darling, it's a lovely day why don't you go out and play? It isn't any fun without Rusty Unfortunately, this segment although it does have a great cast is like and, and the wonder of it, the joy of it, probably, um, is that it is a jaw-dropping example of everything you shouldn't do in a movie. It's very bad. It's terrible. It really is. Uh, I mean, for start with, right, the main character isn't the main character. Probably because it's Alan Freeman and he can't act. He doesn't have anything to do with anything that happens in the story. It's his house and his family, but he just stands in the background. His wife and daughter suffer all the actual plant attacks, and then they bring in a couple of guys to help and to investigate what's going on. And again, he just stands in the background while in the front foreground, Bernard Lee and Jeremy Kemp talk to each other about what might be happening. And and he literally does nothing. It's so bizarre. Then you've got things like Phoebe Nichols played a little girl, but I'm not convinced that she didn't also play the dog because <laughs> when Rusty runs around and gets attacked by the plant, it's going, literally doing that. It's it's a human voice. It's not a dog barking. Probably Percy Edwards. No, Percy Edwards? No, no. Oh, he did. He was an animal impressionist. When I was growing up, he was on telly all the time on Blue Peter. He, did, he, he could impersonate all sorts of animals. There's all sorts of films where he does the voices of various birds and things. I think he might be a little bit good for it then. Well, I perhaps think he it, might yeah. be a bit good if that's the case. None of it makes any sense. No, it's all a bit shonky. There's never an explanation about why the plants have suddenly become sentient and become sort of homicidal. And there's the- uh, Alan Freeman just comes back from his holidays and... 
it happens and he sort of tries to cut one with a pair of shears and it knocks the shears out of his hands. Yeah, but, uh, they, but then later they're able to cut cuttings for analysis yes. and there's no problem with doing that. What if a plant were to take the next step? And what if there were a, a mutation that could develop intelligence, the, the ability to protect itself, perhaps even to know who its enemies were and uh, destroy them? plant like that could take over the world. The lead performance in it really is Bernard Lee, who plays like the guy from the Ministry of uh, Psychotic Plants or something, um, who is kind of a take charge of the situation. And he has a couple of terrible speeches, which he really knocks out of the park yes. in just this really impressive authoritative way where you, you think this is why he was so good and so commanding as James Bond's boss in the first sort of 11 James Bond films and stuff. It could be the end of the world. Open the door. Yeah, he's too good for it, but he's kind of like, he's got that sort of, it's that demeanour of, like, I've signed on the dotted line, so I'm going to play the part as well as I possibly can. It's yep. ridiculous, uh, the lines are ridiculous, but let's just do it. I'm a professional, so let's, let's go. No, he's uh, completely crap. And that's exactly how you should play it. Yeah. The worst kind of acting for a horror film is, is to ham it up or, or, or sort of, or be very self-conscious or sort of like wink to the audience, whatever. You, you have to play these things straight, which is what Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee always did. They always played it straight. It was never tongue-in-cheek. They always took it seriously. And that's why the films are so good. It's because they, they, they play it in the way it should be played. But as for this particular story, yes, it's a bit shonky. It's, and that's the problem with an anthology film, is that inevitably some of the stories are going to be good and some of the stories are going to be bad. And so it's quite difficult to assess whether a film is good or not if half of it is good and half of it... Is, I said there were more good stories in this film than bad stories. The, 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 well, but this is the only really story that doesn't work. Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that. Um, but um, It's also all filmed on... It's quite obviously all filmed on a set. And it's not, there's no location work or anything for this that. This particular story. This particular story. I mean, it, so it's it looks strange because sometimes, in, as in a lot of Hammer films, and in, and in fact, as in the first segment in this film, which is also clearly all filmed on sets indoors, um, Exterior locations recreated in studios have a, a an atmosphere to them and a kind of artifice that kind of helps the mood in these kind of fantastic films and is, you know, I think kind of helps the mood in TV series that use them a lot, like the Avengers. Um, but um, it doesn't work in the no. Creeping Vine. It works in the first one. Yeah, because it's there to create atmosphere. But it's in the so second one, you've just got this kind of astroturf garden, and everything looks kind of bright and. Yeah, it's just it's just awful, really. But I still love it. But the reason I love I it, love it is because <laughs> I love it because it's in a, a film that's otherwise rather dear to me, and also it's just hilariously um, inept, I think. Yes. But but before we go on to the next story, let's just mention Peter Cushing a little bit. We'll get to talk about Christopher Lee later. These guys are the focus of this podcast, mm. after all. Christopher Lee has a, a one of the latest stories to himself, but also we've got Peter Cushing is throughout this film in the linking sequences. And actually his entrance is one of my favourite moments in yes, any when film. Yes, he sort of wipes the condensation from the window or something, doesn't he, and looks, looks inside the... Looks inside the cabin and then leans in, yeah. Accompanied by a, a gorgeously mysterious, slightly wry uh, piece of woodwind music by Elizabeth Lutgens. Pardon me, I think there is room for one point here, is there not? Yes, right here. Cushing's performance in this is um, kind of funny. Yes. But it, it's almost winking at the camera. There are a couple of moments where he looks directly into the camera, but it doesn't. he doesn't do anything that undermines the drama. He just kind of lets you in on the joke a little bit. And the fact of all the Amicus films, which is, this is fun and entertainment. In fact, the Amicus movies, they made me into a horror fan because they made me realise that horror could be fun. Mm. And with all of them, you are chuckling a bit at the ambition, the silliness, the fact that they've got so much in one movie, and the kind of po-faced way that quite outrageous and sometimes hackneyed things are, are presented. And there's a wonderful moment in the first scene uh, where when Dr. Terror is introducing himself to everyone else and uh, he says that the cards are the key and Alan Freeman says, the key to what? <laughs> and uh, he has his little speech where he goes, it's a strange, severe, is it yes, terrifying? It's... And he actually looks in the camera when he says, is it terrifying, is it mysterious, is it unusual? You know, and there's just that little moment. But at the same time, he's he's completely different and almost unrecognisable well, like, from say, when he's like a, Van Helsing. Or... It's quite an unusual part of him at that time because at that time he would be associated either with dashing heroes like Van Helsing mm -hmm. or refined ruthless villains like Frankenstein 
And that's what he'd been playing up to then, certainly for Hammer uh, and in the other films he'd done. And here he is playing this sort of heavily made up yeah, character. He's, he's got a lovely whiskery beard. Middle European accent, being very mysterious and quite sinister and quite silky smooth and... It's it's quite a departure for him, and he, he he clearly is enjoying it, mm. you know. Um, and but he play yeah, he plays it straight. It's not it's not a tongue in cheek performance. It's not a sort of this is beneath me, but I'm doing it kind of. No, th- there's love in it. Yeah. I think. So coming out of the creeping vine story, not to give away the ending. But um, Alan Freeman looks at Dr. Terror and says, And that's going to happen to me. And then Dr. Terror goes, Will anybody else want to tap the cards? And we go on to the next character, who is Biff Bailey, Biff played Bailey. by Roy Castle. Tell us a little about that story, Howard. Uh, Roy Castle, in a part that was intended for Acker Bilk, oh, right. but he was ill, so he couldn't do it. So Roy Castle took over. And Roy Castle was a great musician, of course, so he could play the trumpet and everything. Uh, plays a musician called Biff Bailey, who was sent by his agent off to the West Indies. Uh, for a gig or something. An island with lots of voodoo going on. And he listens to a voodoo ceremony and really likes the music. And he thinks this, this voodoo music could be a hit record back in Britain. So he writes it down, but he's seen writing it down. So the high priest of the voodoo cult puts a curse on him uh, and he falls into some water, which is uh, what happens. <laughs> and and it's he's, as thrilling as it sounds. Yeah, no, it Tubby Hayes Quartet are with him as well, and Kenny Lynch. So it's... <laughs> It's 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 um, a curious one this because it's it's a lighter it's like the comedy one yeah. in a sense because it's got Roy Castle in it and it's a bit of slapstick like you say he does fall into some water and he's sort of like, there's jokes in it and everything but I think it's it's the scariest okay all right he said controversially I'll tell, I'll say some stuff and then you can come to explain why you think it's the scariest well I also asked my friend Ben about this because I remembered that he commented on it when he first discovered Doctor Terror's House of Horrors and this is what he said. You've already said that it's, it's a bit racist, but do you maybe want to expand on that or say anything else about that particular story? It's a lot racist. They call it the West Indies and they don't make it very specific and they, they don't really go into details. It does kind of look like somebody's gone, oh, well, you know, voodoo's this and this is the West Indies and we'll put all the stereotypes in there. Kind of doubt it was written by somebody that's actually been out there and experienced kind of like the idea and the approach to voodoo behind the time. I think it's just someone's idea that they've, they've put in there and I think it probably does reflect the 60s attitude of different cultures and different ethnicities uh, within that time and how people were very blinkered to that and I just uh, yeah it was the the story that kind of disappointed me a bit because uh, I think it was just yeah I I think at the time it's quite culturally ignorant okay I just didn't like that story out of them all I thought there were better ones in there and um, that was the one for me that I didn't kind of love so much i mean and i was kind of laughing at it so much because of the cultural ignorance that was in there i think it's just worth asking the question do we think this is racist uh it's because i would say it isn't you wrote down the sacred music of the great god dambella (sighs) what we've got is um obviously they don't go on location we have a recreation of an island in shepperton studios and um, a couple of scenes of supposed local tribal voodoo practice. And London actors, all, all genuinely black actors playing these characters. But what I would say is, you know, in those days, this kind of stuff happened all the time. If it is racist, it's no more racist than any other movie of the time. It's no more racist than James Bond's Doctor No, for instance. I'm sure it's not a very accurate representation of any kind of voodoo religion, but it wouldn't be the only horror movie to mess with that either. I suppose looked at now objectively, yes, it, it is. I suppose it, it does make you feel a bit uncomfortable, the portrayal of the, of the people on the island. But I, I, I don't think it's intended to be. Like you say, it's, it's no more racist no. than anything else at the time. I don't think it was... If you're doing a story about voodoo, it has to be like this, in a way. Well, what I'd also add is that, as you said before, it is the comedy segment. And the mark of a good comedy segment is, is it's funny. And the mark of any portrayal of any story, really, when you're dealing with whether it's racist or not, is how sophisticated is it. And actually, um, it is quite sophisticated. In fact, what I would say is, the reason the Creeping Vine story is in this movie is to make you realise how good 
the following story is because after you've just watched the creeping vine which makes you want to kill yourself this one is incredibly good um the music's great it has genuine ethnic minority performers like Kenny Lynch, who plays a character not unlike himself, and writes and performs a couple of the songs, and they're great. Take me in your arms and kiss me. No more false stars, baby. Give me love. You still going through that voodoo thing, man? Sure, why not? I'll tell you one thing. You got guts. Thanks. We'll probably see them before the night's out. Spread all over the floor. They'll eat anything here. There's loads of great jokes. The dialogue's really fast and funny. Yeah, there's some great jokes in it. But also, yeah, it is a comedy episode, but there's also what I think is a scarier sequence in the film, which is where Roy Castle leaves the club and walks back to his house. And it's really, really brilliantly done. It's so eerie. And it's so scary. And, and so a car suddenly pulls up and he sort of like jumps. And, and he makes the audience jump as well because it's, it's, it's a shock moment. And there's all like wind blowing and he's stumbling around. And it's a really eerie, scary, effective sequence. And even, even when he's playing the music in the club and there's this sort of like, sort of like supernatural wind that some comes mm. in and starts blowing things about and everything gets knocked around and everything. But he keeps on playing because, you know, people are paid to see him. So it's, it's, it's really well done. It's like, that's not done in any kind of comedic way. No. That's done absolutely, the, the, the horror element of that story is done absolutely straight. Yeah. And it is scary. And, uh, and because the humour is funny, it actually helps the horror. This, it's how good horror comedy should work. The scary bits are scary, the funny bits are funny, and they reinforce each other because the contrast makes you notice. When it's suddenly not funny anymore and you realise you're scared, that's what's wonderful about this kind of movie and the great horror comedy movies of which there aren't very many, like Scream and American Wealth in London and stuff like that, they, they all do that. There's also a brilliant moment where Roy Castle sort of uh, falls to the ground and behind him there's a poster for a film called Dr. Terror's House of Horrors starring Biff Bailey. And yeah. the, the names of the characters, the actors in the film on this poster are the names of the characters in the film, if you see what I mean. And that's a, an amazingly kind of self-referential, whatever the word is, sort of thing, that there's a poster for the film in the film. It is, again, it reminds you of Scream. And it's a really, yeah, it's a really clever touch. And Roy Castle, of course, is lovable. Everybody loves Roy Castle and he's brilliant and he's... Yeah, and he's a perfect so, kind of protagonist for this kind of story, which is that you think he's an idiot for doing what he's doing, but he's likeable enough that you go with it anyway and you don't want him to come a cropper. No, no, you don't, yeah, because Roy Castle, you don't want anything to happen to him, so... So yeah, I think that I think that um, I know people have accused it of being racist. I, I wouldn't want to say that it isn't, but I just think and and it's of its time, which can be a bit of a cop out. I think it's it's well intended. Mm, yes, it is. I don't think it's intended to be offensive to anybody. If there's an accusation of racism, it's that the the voodoo culture depicted in the film is is not accurate, and also the characters don't seem very sophisticated. But I think you know they're straightforward, menacing archetypes, aren't they? But that's what makes it funny. Biff Bailey's such an idiot. And the, the kind of voodoo characters don't do anything evil. He's no. the bad guy. He steals something from them which he, which he shouldn't. And they just come after him. And the way that they come after him is scary. But also there's a kind of black comedy to some things that happen as part of that part of the story as well. It's film voodoo, isn't it? It's voodoo as in portrayed in so many films. <laughs> So, that's a much better segment of the film, and the following segment is arguably even better than that one. The following segment is Disembodied Ham. Yes. Now, this bit of the movie is kind of generally regarded as the strongest segment. I think so, yes. Um, by a number of critics, and um, and also, it's if you fancy you checking out a bit of this movie, um, you can see it for free and legally, because screen-bound pictures who I think distribute the DVD of the movie at the moment, have put up this whole segment on YouTube as a kind of advert for the movie. I think perhaps they shouldn't have put the best bit of the movie <laughs> on YouTube, but it's there if you want to check it out. It's also quite regularly broadcast, by the way, on uh, our beloved horror channel. Yes, I think it's coming up soon. So It seems to be on every month or so, so, so watch out for that. But yeah, in Disembodied Hand, we have an art critic, Franklin Marsh, played by Christopher Lee, and we have... An artist played by Michael Goff. I can't remember the name of the artist. Eric Landor. Eric Landor, of course. Christopher Lee's playing a very unsympathetic character here. He's a very egotistical and rather arrogant um, art critic. Uh, and he's sort of like, he's constantly criticising the, the Michael Goff character. So Michael Goff decides he's going to get his revenge. I won't give away how he does that. Christopher Lee's character is humiliated. So in order to get his revenge on Michael Goff, he runs him over 
uh, and somehow Michael Goff's hand gets cut off during this uh, hit and run incident. Yeah, very neatly. Very neatly, yeah. It, it, I'm not quite sure that would happen. And then uh, Michael Goff, who was an artist, but he can't paint anymore because he's got no hand, so he commits suicide with his other hand. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then the disembodied hand sort of <laughs> returns from the grave and attacks uh, Christopher Lee. This is much more like, I think, the stories in, in the later anthology films because Christopher Lee's character is somebody who is unsympathetic, so he, there's the idea of getting his comeuppance. He's being punished for being arrogant and pompous and, and driving this man and, and yeah. you know, trying to kill this man. A lot of these stories have a kind of twilight zone or outer limits. It's, it's a, not very nice a, people. With a moral dimension. Yeah, there's, there's a moral element to a lot of the later ones, but not in this one. In all the other ones, they're just, just, just sort of like fairly stories. innocent people, nice people who, yeah. who get caught up in these sort of <laughs> terrible events. Whereas sort of Christopher Lee's asking for it, in a sense. He's, he's not a nice person. And he does get his comeuppance, and he, and he is. And it's great because it's sort of like, I mean, the hand itself is, is not the most convincing prop, but... Um, I think he's pretty good, actually. I think he's pretty good for his time. Hmm. But what sells it is Christopher Lee's sort of like reactions to it, because he's very good at, at being terrified. He's looking fantastic. Terrified. And when, yeah. there's one scene where it attacks him by the fire mm. and hits it with a poker. He looks absolutely bloody... It does look terrified. He looks sort of like... Uh, yeah, and there's a bit, he, he manages to pick the hand up and put it into the fire, and you see it writhing in the flames, and he looks so vividly disgusted by that. It's a great performance from him, and you're engrossed in his emotions throughout it, really. Yes. And even in the, even in the sort of like the, the connecting story, he's sort of like the bad guy. He's the one who's constantly attacking... Uh, He's belittling belittling him. Really? Do we have to suffer all this nonsense? There's no harm in it. Astrologers, spiritualists, table rappers, the entire lunatic fringe. They've been exposed for the charlatans they are over and over again. Perhaps you would like to learn your future. Just perhaps a call? I must warn you, gentlemen, this is undoubtedly a well-rehearsed prelude to some shabby form of confidence trick. You can fool all these others as much as you please, Doctor, but kindly leave me out of it. The table rappers and the whole lunatic fringe and all this sort of thing, and he's putting him down. All the others are sort of like, well, I'm quite interested in what you're saying. Uh, and Christopher Lee saying, no, this is all nonsense, forget about it. I'm Franklin Marsh, I'm very important, I'm very famous. So he's sort of like the closest thing to a kind of a villain mm. in, 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 in the film. Whereas the others are sort of just people just get caught up in these, in these bizarre <laughs> situations and, and don't, don't really deserve some of the things they get. Whereas he sort of does... In the later films, in, in sort of like Tales from the Crypt or Vault of Horror, most of them are unpleasant people who get their just desserts, some, some terrible kind of punishment for the things they've done. But that was the kind of thing that developed later on, not, not particularly in this film. And Michael Goff, who um, every time anyone talks about Michael Goff, because it's the most familiar thing, they always say he was Alfred in the mm. Batman films, the Tim Burton and uh, Joel Schumacher Batman films from the 80s and 90s, which was kind of right at the end of his career. He, he was also in a couple of later Tim Burton films, and I think his last one was Alice in Wonderland, where he did a voice, and then he died. And nobody knows quite how old No, he's very he vague about it. He doesn't know whether he was born in 1915 or 1960s. He says he couldn't remember. Right. That's my, that's, <laughs> I think I'm going to adopt the same policy. I, he, I can't he, remember when I was born. Well, he, he was an enigmatic guy. Guy, um, with an interesting life and interesting experiments with kinds of drugs and things. He was a very <laughs> 1960s guy, even though he was not of that generation. And he'd already had form in horror. He, he was in Hammer's Dracula with Cushing and Lee, and he was in Horrors of the Black Museum. Horrors of the Black Museum. Yeah, Gorgo he did a few, like sort of like... Uh, oh, no, Conga. Sorry, he was in Conga. He's in Horrors of the Black Museum, and he's in Conga. And he's in a film called Black Zoo, which I've never seen. And I've then, never seen any of them. Uh, and then he's in Phantom of the Opera. Hammer, oh, yeah. Phantom of the Opera, playing the villain in that. And I think he's an actor who, I mean, I, I love him as well as Batman. Uh, he was in The Avengers a lot, he's in Doctor Who. You know, I always like to see him. He is a bit of a hammy guy sometimes. Sometimes he can't be bothered to try. There's an episode of Blake 7 he's in where he looks asleep. Um, <laughs> however, he is really good as, as uh, this character and the relationship between him and the critic you feel the resentment on both sides very strongly. And then, after the car accident where the artist has lost his hand, there's a wonderful scene, which is the worst production value <laughs> in the film, where he's looking at the stump of his hand, and it's really terribly obvious that Michael Goff's fist has <laughs> just been wrapped up in bandages. And Goff has to look at it with a, a sense of... Oh no, I've lost my hand, how am I ever going to go on? And it's to Goff's immense credit, 
that it is poignant and you do feel it is sadness. poignant there's a scene where he's sort of like crying yeah is he looking at his pictures he's 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 done before this happened, and it's sort of it is very poignant. And you also get the sense that uh, Franklin Marsh, the critic, has disparaged a lot of people mm. over years. So Michael Goff's revenge on him is kind of representing a lot of artists that have been sort of <laughs> attacked by the critic. So it's sort of like that, that sense is not just a, a personal thing, perhaps, but it's sort of like this 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 critic has just been knocking people and disparaging people and being derogatory for a long time, and somebody's finally putting him in his place, kind of thing. Yeah, and the story works as a parable like that, and it works as just a, a really engaging tale because of that. It's well told and so well acted. And I know me and you have said before that we are actors and we bang on about actors and the quality of certain performances, but in a way, this that moment where he's crying over his obviously not severed hand is kind of symbolic of what I love about a lot of these movies, that they still touch your heart and deliver something true and real, even if they're really cheap or whatever, you know, because the acting is so good and sometimes the writing is so good. Something else about this story that I just like, a random detail, is that when the credits come up at the end, it kind of gives you the titles of all the stories and the actors who are in them, but it doesn't tell you the characters they played, and it doesn't tell you all the actors. So the credit for this particular story says, Disembodied Hand, Christopher Lee, Michael Goff. That's it. <laughs> there's loads of other actors in there, this. There's a lot of, there's a young Isla Blair, yeah. and there's a young Judy Cornwell, who's in Keeping Up Appearances. So yeah, there's, there's it's, it's it's, uh, yeah, that's annoying. But luckily, one of the books that we love and refer to, uh, Jonathan Rigby's English Gothic, lists Dr. Terrors as one of the hundred most significant British horror films of the last century. And it does have a full cast list, including all the uncredited characters. So that's um, well worth investigating if you, if you want to find out details like that. known as 12-Tone Lizzie. Does this mean anything to you? I don't know very much about Elizabeth Lutyens, no. I think we should just talk about her. Uh, Elizabeth Lutyens, who was the daughter of a famous uh, architect and oh, born, yeah, in, yeah. born in 1906. So th- when this movie was made, she was like 59. She'd been composing for about 30 years. And in a way, she only kind of broke out into mainstream knowledge when she started writing music for horror films. Although within academic circles and um, kind of more high-minded musical circles. She was known as one of the exponents of the 12-tone serialist style of musical composition uh, developed by uh, a man called Arnold Schoenberg. And right, I'm not, I'm not a musical expert. I'm just learning the banjo now, and I'm not very good. But I'm trying to pick these things up. Do, do you know anything about serialism? No. Uh, 12-tone composition? No. Well, you know, well, I've just looked into it. You know when you've got a, a musical scale, there's eight notes in it plus the black notes on the keyboard. But it's really the, the eight notes are the important ones. But Schoenbergian serialism, all 12 are equally important, and, that, and you create your melodies based on using all 12 notes. It's probably one of those things that is complicated to explain and actually affects the final product less than it sounds like it should. However, that was part of Elizabeth Lutgen's technique, and I think what's obvious and wonderful is how effective it is for this kind of movie and how unusual there's there's very few other film scores like this that are kind of seductive and melancholic and gentle and chilling i'm a huge fan of of this score and of her other horror movie scores it wasn't our first horror movie score this she'd spent like the 50s writing music for documentaries and and tv shows but in the 60s moved into horror and had done a hammer film for freddie francis uh, which was paranoiac in oh, 63, uh, one of Hammer's rare modern set black and white thrillers. And then she did um, The Earth Dies Screaming, which is a Terence Fisher movie for Planet Film Productions. With Dennis Price. Yeah, and it's a great little, um, very, very cheap, um, spooky sci-fi movie, which is so cheap that it uses stock footage from Village of the Damned, <laughs> but it's still worth watching. And she did The Skull, for again for Freddie Francis, for Amicus, with now Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. We'll be talking about that in detail in another episode. And uh, and later on she did a couple more. She did The Terranauts. Um, oh, the Terranauts? Have you seen The Terranauts? I haven't seen oh, it. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like one of Amicus's, in the style of their Doctor Who films, it's one of their kind of attempts to make kiddie sci-fi Yes, that the budget is not high for that film. I think that's the one with Charles Hawtrey in. Right. So you can imagine the kind of thing that it, and Patricia Hayes. It's I saw it a long time ago. It's 
<laughs> no, it just it just makes me smile remembering it. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away. I have sure. to watch it. Well, I'll I'll try to. If Maybe it'll be on the horror channel soon. Let's oh. hope so. Have you got any thoughts about the uh, the vampire episode starring none other than Donald Sutherland? Yeah, although the issue is every time I watch that, all I can think about is the plot for Don't Look Now. So <laughs> I just describe it as Don't Look Now with vampires, which it totally isn't. But every time I see a horror film with Donald Sutherland, uh, I do think of, you know, the classic Red Mac and a dwarf, not so much a vampire. <laughs> so we're then on to the final story, which is Vampire, yes. starring Donald Sutherland, a very young Donald Sutherland. But I would say that as soon as he gets into that train carriage and says sorry sorry to uh christopher lee and then um christopher lee kind of shuts him down with an icy stare you can tell instantly that sutherland is a movie star yes he's, he's, he's playing this sort of like gawky it's like the awkward character then when he gets in the train carriage he sort of falls onto the seat and he's sort of like this big lunk yeah it's not it's donald sutherland because he lived in england in those days and was doing things like the saint and the avengers and that sort of thing and i'll never forget there's an episode of the avengers that's got donald sutherland charlotte rampling and brian blessed that episode's called the superlative yes Seven. i just couldn't believe it when i first watched that at the age of i don't know 13 14 i, I I've never, I've never seen it since I was about 15, I but just, I just remember that episode being amazing and just going, Amazing, what? just because of the cast. Yeah. I couldn't believe that these people were... And Charlotte Rampling, of course, is in a, a later Amicus film, so... She is, and she's just been nominated for an Oscar. Yes. You know, that's, that's the amazing reach that these films still have. Yes. Yeah, and in Vampire, Donald Sutherland plays um, an American doctor who's moved back to America with his French wife. Jennifer Jane. And uh, it's obviously not America. Again, it's Shepparton Studios and it's all indoors. He's one of the only two doctors in this small town. The other one being played by a great actor called Max Adrian. Yes. I always mention Halliwell's Film Guide. Um, I remember the review of this in Halliwell's Film Guide. I haven't been able to check it because I've just moved house and all my books are in a box somewhere. But I remember it saying that something like, I think it was two stars and it said something like, apart from a couple of naive stories, this is a fun little um, chocolate box thing. And Halliwell had a little quirk, which was that anybody involved in the film, whether on the production or the acting side, who's, he felt they made a particular contribution to making the film as good as it is, they'd get their name italicised. And I remember that the italicised names in this cast were Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Max Hadrian. Not Christopher Lee. Oh, not Christopher Lee. It's Peter Cushing, Ursula Howells. Oh, is it? Adrian. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, and I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, I would look Christopher Lee. I think Christopher Lee is good. I think Michael Goff is good. Yeah. No, but, they're uh, very good, but it's the, the particular contributions. And I always like that. You know, yeah. I remember that um, Halliwell underrated Zulu, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. But he did, he did highlight Michael Caine oh. for, for being the one who pushed it beyond. But, yeah, Max Adrian gives a very arch, interesting performance. Yes, it's, it's, it's quite an eccentric performance. Uh, yeah, he's not sending it up, but there's a certain sort of, like, humour to it, I think. He's sort of, I think. Yes, and there is a moment of him looking into the camera as well. You know, there's that kind of, again, that, that slightly on the edge, well, this is all fun, but it's yeah. good Well, fun. I've read that he really enjoyed making that film, all right. Max Adrian. And there's that sense to it. It's he's, he's just an actor enjoying himself. But yeah, he's playing it straight, but there's a sense of slightly relishing it. And sort he, of like... he had a great face, and mm. it's just good cinema to just see him on the screen. His eyes and his hawk-like nose, you know. He's got a great voice as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, you know, um, I don't know what kind of accent he was doing, but yeah, yeah. That did actually sound quite like him. <laughs> He's got that sort of uh, kind of very nasal sort of voice, hasn't he? Sort of like. Yeah, yeah. Um, because obviously in this film we are in America. We certainly are. Well, it's, it's set in New England, and they always used to set films. If a film was made in Britain, they set it in New England, so the accents don't sound... Because New oh. England can sound yes. a bit English in a way. So they yeah, it's kind of Fraser. But it, 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 it is obviously in a studio. It's obviously a Shepard and Studio. It doesn't seem remotely American. If they didn't have American accents, you wouldn't know you're supposed to be in America. But at the same time, I do like something of the atmosphere of it. And it reminds me a bit of an earlier film that Milton Zabotsky produced called The City of the Dead, which again was set in New England, but filmed in, in London and has Christopher Lee doing a really good American accent and a bunch of American actors and a singer called Dennis Lotus. Dennis Lotus, yes. And that's a really atmospheric um, little uh, kind of black magic movie. So, yeah, and basically the plot of Vampire, which is very simple and we can't talk about it too much, um, but um, Donald Sutherland begins to suspect that his wife it might be a vampire. And that's about it, really. <laughs> There's a twist, 
which is a great twist when you watch it. It's very neat, and you think, oh, that's... But if you think about it, the twist makes no sense. No, I know what you mean. But I, we can't say any more. But it's still, it's still quite effective. Um, Jennifer Jane is really interesting, mm. and she later became a screenwriter under the name Jay Fairbank and wrote a movie that we'll talk about in a bit that was also an anthology film directed by Freddie Francis called Tales of the Witness Madness. Ooh. And then we go back to the... Uh, the train carriage and we have the the proper twist ending of the of the linking story and one of the things i like about an, an anthology movie like this is that you kind of have like five or six twist endings mm. twist on twist on twist and the, and that contributes to the film staying in your memory i think often these movies can't the overall twist in these movies is often the same thing yes but and and here is no exception. However, it's just very beautifully filmed. It's and the music and and the the way that the reveals are done is just lovely. Um, and and stays with me. So I think we're we're near the end of our discussion of Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. Um, although in a moment I would like to have a, a quick chat about a couple of the films which followed it. Um, but um, Howard, is there anything else you'd like to say about this particular movie? No, I, I, it, it's a favourite film of mine. I watch it. I actually watch it all the time. It's, it's a weird thing. I actually find it very comforting. Mm. Now, a horror film is not supposed to be comforting, so that's supposed to be reassuring. But I watch it because, because I watch it as a kid, and because I like so many of the people in it, like Peter Cushing and Roy Castle and all these sort of people. And because it is kind of, it, it's, it's not. It's scary, but it's not horrific. It's not particularly graphic. It's not gruesome. It's, it's sort of, it, it's charming. In yeah, a way. it's very much of its time. It's very sixties, and it's very sort of slightly gaudy and everything. And and but it is it, it it's trying so hard to be entertaining. Milton Sabotsky is making a film just to entertain horror film fans, so he's putting everything in it. And so it has a, a real charm because of that. It's sort of like you know making a film for for people like us, for people who like horror films. If you're a kid, it's, it's it's the most wonderful thing having vampires and werewolves and everything in the same film. And it's just uh, I just I, 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 it's it's a favorite film of mine, and I can watch it over and over again, and indeed have done. I think, as um, somebody said on another podcast, possibly the Hamicus podcast, which is one of the best-named podcasts I've discovered, um, it's like the ideal um, my first horror movie thing. You can show it to your kids, probably, you know, as long as they're older than about six. <laughs> um, you, you know, there's there's nothing too strong in it. No, it's, it's not gruesome, it's not graphic, it's not... It's, it's, just, it's just very charming. But it's, it's an appetiser. And it's a, you know it gets you attuned to that kind of atmosphere and those kind of um, thrills really. So great. So let's just have a listen to Elizabeth Lutchin's final cue from the movie. Produced. And um, one of those, The House That Dread Blood in 1970, features again both Cushing and Lee. So we will discuss that in detail in a, another podcast. But, you know, there's, a, there's about seven or eight of these films. So I don't think we should discuss them all now. But I do think maybe we should just discuss a couple of films that feel 
distinctly spun off from Dr. Terrors. The first one is the very following anthology film from Amicus, again directed by Freddie Francis in 1967, I think. It's called Torture Garden. And uh, even as our old friend James Bernard on music for two of the segments, um, no Elizabeth Lutchens, sadly. And no Christopher Lee, but it does have Peter Cushing again, and it has four stories linked by um, a funfair kind of House of Horrors character called Dr. Diablo, played by Burgess Meredith. Burgess Meredith the Penguin. Yeah, and there's, again, like you said before, there's a more international feel to this one. Jack Palance is also... This has got genuine Hollywood stars in it. This has got Jack Palance and Burgess Meredith, uh, as well as Peter Cushing and a lot of very distinguished British character actors. And an actress called Beverly Adams, who who did this film and disappeared without trace. And if you see her performance in the film, you'll understand why. Uh, (laughs) Right. Bless her. Uh, yeah, and it, 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 sort of, it's, it is set at a funfair, so it's, it's, but it, it's kind of the same, it looks the same, it's got the same feel, it's got the same texture, it's got that 60s kind of colour to it and that sort of slightly lurid quality to it. I, I, um, mm. Yeah, I think, the, I mean, some of the stories are good, some of them are silly. The one with the evil pl- piano. The is... killer piano is, um, to be fair, it is really well done. Mm. It's actually quite well directed. Again, Ursula Howes is in that, giving a very good performance. It all give very good performances. It's it's done as well as it could possibly be done. It's just a film about a killer piano, a piano possessed by an evil spirit or something that, that kills people, and you can't get over that. However, however well it's done, you can't get over the fact that it's about a killer piano. No, but it, but it, the whole film does look nice, and um, although I think overall its linking story isn't as atmospheric in setting as Doctor Sarah's, because like a funfair thing, it just isn't as claustrophobic or transporting, literally, as um, uh, a train carriage is, I think, um, for, for telling those kind of spooky stories. It, it works. And I think one of the stories, the one with Jack Plants and Peter Cushing, which is The Man Who Collected Poe, uh, is probably the best story out of the two films in general. I just think yes. it's very strong. Mm. And in fact, that particular story made a strong impression on uh, Martin Scorsese, for instance, which is why 20-odd years later he hired Freddie Francis to shoot, photograph um, his remake of Cape Fear because he wanted um, that kind of horror heritage present in that particularly scary movie. And he did mention to Freddie Francis, yeah, The Man Who Collected Poe was brilliant. I've never forgotten you because of that. And another film which we've already mentioned but should talk a little more about is Tales of the Witness Madness, which was uh, the only horror anthology-type movie made in the 60s and 70s that Milton Zapotsky had nothing to do with. Um, it's actually made by World Productions or something. But you'd think it was a close cousin to Dr. Sarah because it's directed by Freddie Francis, and it's also written under the name Jay Fairbank by the actress from Vampire, Jennifer Jane. It's a bit of a weird film, though, and I remember reading an interview with Jennifer Jane where she said that it wasn't really intended as a horror film. They just had to make it more horrific because that was the market that the production company or the distributor wanted to push it towards. So you end up with this movie. It's linked by um, a clinic run by a psychiatrist played by Donald Pleasance in what feels like a wonderful kind of (laughs) pre-Halloween dry run um, and he's working with four particular patients and each one of them has a story associated with them which we then go into the story supposed to be the, the pathology behind their madness and they're quite quirky odd stories and very they, quirky they've all got some something a bit horrific in them but they're not that horrific and really it does feel like it, it was intended as a like a black comedy or something but they just kind of pushed it in the horror direction um yeah, the, the the story with Michael Jaston is um, possibly the most memorable one, maybe not for the best reason. Uh, what was that you said before about that Well, story? I just said, if you were married to Joan Collins, would you dump Joan Collins for a tree? That is the plot of that's, the story. That's the plot. Uh, I, I'm still undecided. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, a tough one. Um, there's also the uh, the evil penny farthing story. There's a time-travelling penny farthing which controls people, as in, if you look at this penny farthing in an antique shop, it possesses you to get on it and start peddling, which then sends you back in time, which means that actors have to do this amazing thing where they act being dragged towards a penny farthing against their will by an invisible force and then act peddling really fast against their will. Um, certainly uh, an acting test which should be included <laughs> on some level uh, in, in RADA, I, sh- I think. And the linking story has um, the clinic that Donald Pleasance is running being visited by Jack Hawkins. Mm. Jack Hawkins, of course, great uh, British movie star of the 40s and 50s. Um, 
going on the skids by this point. He lost his voice a few years before, I believe. Yes. Was it throat cancer? It was throat cancer. And um, uh, So he had to do fairly small roles, supporting roles. And, and he was dubbed by Charles Gray, usually, or by other actors. Yes, yeah, certainly in the movie of Kidnapped, he's dubbed by Charles Gray. You can tell it. In Theatre of Blood, he's dubbed by Charles Gray. Right, OK. And um, I don't know if he had no voice at all, or if it was, you know, in real life, or whether he, he could, like, speak in a whisper or something. But there's something about his performance in this film, particularly, where he looks like someone who has no voice, and in order to be under- make sure that the other person in the scene with him understands him, he does a really big kind of mimed thing, which then Charles Gray, dubbing it, has to match. Mm. So Charles Gray ends up saying things like, all four subjects completed at last! And it's just like, he just seems to be shouting in Donald Pleasance's face. He could, he could speak with great difficulty. Right. So you, if you saw him, you could tell he was speaking with difficulty. So he had to sort of mime it. Then he could. Then it looked like he was speaking properly. Right. Okay. So he could speak. I also want to say that uh, one of the stories has, and I only saw this film a very long time ago, so I, <laughs> I don't remember that well. I think there's a story, a black magic story, with Kim Novak. It's got Kim Novak and Mary Tam, and it's Mary quite Tam. good actually. But I like that, that part, the Kim Novak part, was originally offered to no less than Rita Hayworth. Okay. One of the great stars, an absolutely gorgeous actress, and I'm glad you didn't do it because it's a rubbish film. And <laughs> It would have been demeaning for her, because I'm a great fan of Rita Hayworth, and I wouldn't want to see her doing something like that. <laughs> no, fair enough. Although it is the only other film, apart from Vertigo, that I've ever seen Kim Novak in. So I'm just glad to see her. Yes, no, she's, she's perfectly fine. Uh, have you never seen um, the TV movie Satan's Triangle? No. She's in that. Oh, you should watch that. Okay. Now, there's a twist. That's one to mention. Mm. All right. And um, there are several... Other Amicus films, which I think we'll... When we do uh, The House of the Dread Blood, we'll, we'll discuss the 70s ones, I think. Unless you want to talk a little bit about From Beyond the Grave now. I just wanted to mention that, because I know that you are particularly fond of um, From Beyond the Grave. And I do see it as, in a way, the spiritual direct sequel to Doctor Terror, because it is the only one, the only other one, of all the Amicus films in which the storyteller, the linking character, is played by Peter Cushing. Yes. He's really good in that one as well. I think really From Beyond the Grave is the only film where all the stories are successful. All the stories work. There's not one dub story. Even in something like Tales from the Crypt, which I really like, there is, there is one not mm. very good story. So, and there's always, that's the thing about the Amicus films, there is this inconsistency. There's always like one that lets it down. And you have to sort of like sit through that to get to... But at the same time, that's the appeal of it. I mean, you know, as my sister, again, my sister Maureen, who introduced me to all this stuff in the first place, um, you know, she just used to, she loves these movies because you can sit down and watch them and you know that there's going to be one bit of it that's good at least, mm. you know. Um, whereas you can't guarantee that with a single-story movie. No, yes. So, um, um, and all of them do have one or two really good stories in there. They do, they do. If you could put all the good stories together, you'd have one hell of a film. But uh, I have to say, uh, of all of them, I think Dr. Terrace House of Horrors is my favourite. Oh, OK. It's, yes, it is. It's the one. It's not the best one. I don't think anybody would say it's the best one, but it's the one I find most enjoyable. So, yeah, watch it. If it's on Horror Channel, then you should watch it, because it's great. And on that note, I always like to thank someone who's inspired me on the path of appreciating these films um, before we end our podcast. And I'd just like to make mention of an individual who's sadly no longer with us, called Jerry Kubro, who was one of my teachers at university when I did film studies with production at Sheffield Hallam. He was in charge of teaching the Hammer Unit, possibly the only Hammer unit at any university in the country. And shortly after we finished, although he was still there, the Hammer unit was discontinued. Someone obviously felt it was no longer too relevant. But certainly I loved it, and his enthusiasm for it was clear to see, even though um, he was fond of the drink, Jerry, and um, he wasn't always the most coherent individual. There was a wonderful moment where we were talking about the Quatermass experiment, and... Um, we discussed the tendency of Hammer in, in its early days to, like a lot of small British companies, bring in international actors, American actors, to kind of headline their productions and make them a bit bigger. And therefore, they brought in Brian Don Levy. And Jerry said to me in the class discussion, Jerry said to me, Ah, but the thing about Brian Don Levy, he wasn't American, was he? And I said, No, Jerry, he was Irish, actually. And Jerry said, Oh, you knew that? How, how did you know that? And I said, You told me, Jerry, <laughs> two weeks ago. But he's absolutely lovable. On the last day of uni, he uh, he took a lot of us out to the pub and bought a round of drinks. God bless him. Which seemed 
uh, rather characteristic of him. Sadly, uh, I went back to Sheffield a few years later and saw him sitting outside the showroom cinema chatting to somebody. And I thought about going up to him, but thought he probably won't remember me. And I'm really sad that I didn't go up to him because the next thing I knew a couple of years later, I'd heard he died. But certainly he's someone I had very fond memories of and he and I had many good discussions. He lent me his video of Quatermass 2, which was very rare at the time, the BBC version of Quatermass 2, and I lent him my video of Frightmare, which he'd never seen before. I haven't seen it either. Well, I, I hope you'll soon be able to rectify that, mm-hmm. and I'll dig it out of my collection. So, yeah, so this one's for you, Jerry. Nice work, fella. Hope you're having a, a high old time somewhere, wherever you are. And is there anyone in particular you'd like to pay tribute to, Howard? I just want to pay tribute to my mum and dad for letting me watch all these films when I was 10 years old. Irresponsible, yes, letting me stay up late, but uh, I'm so glad they did. So thanks, guys. <laughs> That's what parents should be sometimes, irresponsible. We love them all the more yes. for it. So that's it. As for the film we'll be discussing next time, well, there are another 22 films to choose from, so let's keep it a surprise for now. Yes. Thanks very much, folks. It's been great fun for us. Really hope you've enjoyed it too, and uh, I'll speak to you again soon. Yes, thank you very much, and goodbye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited Presented by Howard Whittock and T.D. Velasquez With special guest Ben Dobbs Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at And Now Podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash And Now Podcast. Sarah Nichols became Phoebe Nichols. Say that again, because it up. My, my yelp of surprise oh. might have cut you off. So. And uh, the actress who plays that child in Dr. Tessar, Sarah Nichols, grew up to be a very distinguished actress who does a lot of TV these days called Phoebe Nichols. Who's done no oil. way. And now the podcast stops.